You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. I want you to imagine a group of travelers traveling along this old, dirty, dusty road. They've been traveling for quite some time, and you can kind of tell it by the look in their faces. They're weather-worn, they're tired, and though they can see a city up ahead just on the horizon, they're so exhausted, they said, we're, we're just going to make camp here for the night. We'll get to the city the next morning. So they camp there along that roadside, they lay down, sun sets, stars come out, it's quiet, and this wearied group of travelers falls quickly asleep. But the next morning, they are awakened to the loud crashing of a cymbal. The thunder of drumbeats, the vibration on the ground caused by thousands and thousands of footsteps marching ever nearer toward them. They wake up, they, they can barely open their eyes. They're, they're so startled in the morning and say, what's, what's going on? What, what's the commotion here? What's the noise? Is, is, is it war? Is it disaster? What in the world is all this noise doing here? Why are these, this group of people coming toward us? And why are they, why are they singing? The reason I want to share this image with you this morning is every day this last week when I've opened to this psalm, this is how I've felt. Just absolutely bewildered. I mean, there is no introduction to this psalm. There's, there's no kind of like slow immersing into the worship here. It comes at you just firing straight out of the gate. No warm-up. It just grabs a hold of you and takes it along. Clap your hands, all peoples. I mean, that's the first words of this psalm. It's the wake-up call. Shout to God with loud shouts of joy. It's just an on-the-spot command. In verse 1, this psalm demands your participation. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Worship God, period. As you hear that, you might, like this opening scene with the travelers, respond with questions. Like, why, why are we clapping our hands right now? Why are we shouting so loudly right now? These are, these are context questions. We're simply asking what God did that suddenly we are erupting with such worship. Like, what, what just happened? Help me to get my bearings here. Fill me in. It's a little bit like if you've ever been that person at a football game, sitting in the stadium and nothing's going on, so you slip out for a quick moment, grab a hot dog from the concessions, and then all of a sudden you hear the crowd just roaring and you think, oh no, and you jump out of line and you run back in the stadium and you say, what happened? The crowd's cheering. Did we, did we recover a fumble? Did we score a touchdown? Did we kick a field goal? What, what's going on here? They're simple questions. We're just saying, I, I see you that you're worshiping, but 
kind of bring me in here and tell me why. Well, it makes sense for us to ask such questions. It's true. Often in the Old Testament, this kind of worship, especially worship in the form of song, is done in response to certain actions of God on behalf of his people. Like the rescue of his people out of Egypt, produces many songs throughout the Old Testament. This is, this is common. What's more, it's good for us as Christians when we read the Bible to ask questions of it, to look for the context, to try to get all the depth that we can from a certain verse or a certain passage. So questions like these, context questions, they're generally a good thing for us to do as readers of the Bible. But note how we keep framing this question in response to the worship of God that we see. We react to it with the question of what did God do? Okay. We see worship, loud erupting worship, happy hearted worship, and we think God must have done something to elicit such a response. This question, the question I found myself asking over and over and over as I came to this psalm in verse one, this question betrays one of the fundamental ways our sin has messed us up as people. For we assume that if God is being worshiped, let alone being worshiped, with such an eruption of praise, that must mean he did something. That's the way we think because that's, that's the way we are. When we think of God and all he is, it can often be sort of a small thing for us. When we just think of God just being there, it can often be a thought that's somewhat stale somewhat humdrum. Perhaps his godness at times may stir up a mild form of worship within us, may prompt a mellow current of joy within our hearts, but his, it's his actions. It's God's actions on our behalf. These are the things that really get us going when we see him working for us. So when we hear this grand call to worship, and then we read on, and it's not followed immediately by action. Look at verse two. Why are we worshiping in such a way? For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. What if the psalm ended there? What if that was it, just verses one and two? Would you be tempted to react with a, oh, is that all? Like this thought of God just kind of falls flat for us. We were expecting something much bigger and much grander due to the eruption of praise in verse one. If that's us this morning, I believe a good, good piece of counsel for us would be to go on over to Isaiah 6, to see a fellow human being, just like you, just like me, to see a fellow human being and what he did when he saw God 
Not God acting, just God. What did Isaiah do when he just saw God, just being God? He saw the heavens opened. He caught sight of the one who had told Moses, no one can see my face lest he die. The one who the apostle John would see and fall down on his face as though dead. The one before whom the mighty heavenly seraphim cover their faces and ever sing for joy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If we were to see what they saw, if we were to see what Isaiah saw, just God, just God being God, we would think ourselves insane for asking the question, why are we worshiping right now? We would be like him, every single one of us, bowed down to the ground saying, woe is me, I am lost. And why? What did you see God doing, Isaiah? Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the king. He just saw God. Just God being there. That is the immeasurable awesomeness of the God who we worship. The overwhelming power of his mere presence. The otherworldly beauty, value, and splendor, and majesty of this great God and King. The psalmist will tell us more about this God. We will see his actions in the ensuing verses. But lest the actions of God continue to shine brighter in our hearts than the mere person of God, he does not go to actions next. He goes to the person. The Lord, the the most high is to be feared a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47 were to end there, we would be just fine. If Psalm 47 were to end there, we could be happy-hearted worshipers. So all we need to know that God is there. We ought to worship him. That's why we're called to worship him right now. Now, as it is, the psalm, having set this foundation firmly for us in verse two, God is king. The psalmist makes a drastic transition from looking upon God through a scale that transcends the universe to narrowing the scope and looking at God and his certain actions on behalf of a certain people. The text reads, He, God, subdued peoples under us, nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you can probably connect the reference here. It's it's Israel following their entrance into the land of Canaan. As you might recall, the land of Canaan had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. Following their exile into Egypt, their journey through the desert, their crossing of the river Jordan, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, arrive at Canaan to find that it is yet a land flowing with milk, flowing with honey, and flowing with a multitude of warring nations. But God would subdue those nations on behalf of Israel. 
He'd place those nations under their feet. From Jericho and onward, the land of Canaan would become the heritage of the people of Israel. Now just fast forward a a bit to the time of King David when he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6 recounts this event, says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And listen to a few words here. He and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. The psalmist seems now to be echoing this event. In verse 5, Psalm 47, he says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So you see that connection there? The psalmist is connecting those two events in the life of Israel. So the psalmist has narrowed the scope here, focusing on these two events, and you might think, okay, I I think I'm catching the flow of this psalm. There's a general claim about God's kingship in the world. That's verses one and two. It's a general claim, God is king. And now we're narrowing the scope in to see examples of what he as king does. We're digging into Israel's history to see proofs of his kingliness in action. We might paraphrase it this way. Yahweh the Most High is to be feared. He is a great king over all of the earth. And in case you have any doubts about that, look back in Israel's history and see what God did for a fairly insignificant and wayward people. Major idea, God is God, supporting evidence, look what he did. That's not wrong. That's, this, it's true. What we do have here as, is an example. But to think of these verses as just a mere example, we're taking them and kind of making them stagnant. Uh, we're taking them and, and preventing them from moving forward. But what happens is as you, as you continue to read this psalm, you can actually see there's definitely a flow here in this psalm. There's a story that is being told. There's a narrative, there's a movement, and these verses are part of that movement. What's the story of this psalm? What's the movement here? I could summarize it this way. God is the God who is over all of the world, part one. God purposes to win worshipers from throughout the whole world. Part two. Let me say this again. God is the God who is over all of the world. And God purposes to win worshipers from throughout all of the world. That's the story of this psalm. That's verse three and on where it's taking us. Now, you can see where this psalm ends in verse nine. The gathering in of the people of the God of Abraham. 
So we have, at the beginning, narrowed lens on the people of Israel, and then the story ends in this broad grouping called the people of the God of Abraham. Think back to Abraham for a moment. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was God's promise to Abraham. And that promise would move forward through the birth of Isaac. And then through the birth of Jacob. And Jacob's name changed to Israel. And the people of Israel who would come from his line. And then their exile into Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness. They're entering back into Canaan where, as we said, God subdued nations. God put nations under their feet, and God gave them a land, a heritage, the land of Canaan. God is God over all of this world, and God purposed to win worshipers from throughout all of the world. God's plan would begin with Abraham, a singular man, Abraham. And it would culminate in the ingathering of a large group of people called the people of Abraham. What was to be the bridge between the two? What was to be the vehicle that would carry singular Abraham to the mighty people of the God of Abraham? What was to take what was small and make it large? What was to take what was local and make it global? God tells us, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. So the movement as a people, the Israelites' conduct as a people, their travel down to Egypt, their bringing back into Canaan, their subduing of those nations, taking that land as their heritage, that movement, that storyline is part of God's storyline to win his worshipers from throughout the world. That's where this psalm uh, brings us next. In verse six, it says five times over, sing praises to God, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises to God. It's as if for the moment, this invitation is being sung out throughout all the directions of the world. Centering in Israel, but flowing out north, south, east, and west. Sing praises to God. Now, the psalmist is an Israelite who's writing this. And note, he says, sing praises to our king. The psalmist is an Israelite. He's saying that this is our king, Yahweh, who you are to sing praises to. But then he goes on in the same breath to say, for God is the king of all of the earth. See, he's our king in a unique way and that he's covenanted with us. We represent him uniquely as his covenantal people. But make no mistake, he is at the exact time the king of all of the earth. He's no local deity. See, Babylonians, you think your your god Marduk is king, but he's not. Egyptians, you think your god Ra is king. He's not. 
Canaanites, you think your god Baal is king. He's not. The psalmist here is saying, our king, Yahweh, is king. But Egyptians, Canaanites, Babylonians, guess what? Even though your king is not king, that does not mean you are without a king. For while he is ours, he's also the king of all of the world. Worship of him is not optional. Kings don't make decrees that are optional. The Israelite is saying to these nations, if you will worship this king, then you will be as the people of the God of Abraham. Celebrate that God reigns over the nations, that he sits on his throne, that the princes of the people gather together. But if you will not worship him, he will, as your king, rightfully subdue you beneath his feet. In other words, nations, the blessing promised through Abraham has arrived in the the people of Israel. Your invitation is waiting. Look out at the sea of people approaching on the horizon. And look at this people. They're not just Israel anymore. This people is comprised of the princes of the peoples, the leaders of the nations, the emperors, the sultans, the lords, the barons, presumably with the men and women from their distant lands. They are coming and they are coming together. Together. This sea of people has no partitions between them. This sea of people does not have space between them as they arrive on the horizon together. This sea of people is coming together as the people of the God of Abraham. Not like the people of God of Abraham, not behind the people of the God of Abraham, but as the very people of the God of of Abraham, you're gathering together. God is God over all of this world. God is to win worshipers from throughout the world and here they are. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. The shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. That's the story of this psalm. That's the movement here. Now what's the application for us here today? I have two applications for us and they're both in the form of a question. The first is this. Do you see in this psalm God's pursuit of you? Do you see in this psalm God's pursuit of of you. Most of, here to, most of us here today are not Israelites. We have no bloodline reaching back to Israel or Abraham. And yet here we are mentioned in this psalm. That's right. You and me were mentioned here in this psalm. The people of the God of Abraham, that's us. Read Galatians 3. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
See, this is a story, Psalm 47, is a story of God's pursuit of worshipers. It's begun with Abraham, it's carried through the Israelites, but this was a pursuit that included his pursuit of you. Don't push us away. Don't say, God, God wasn't thinking of me back then. God didn't have me in mind when he called Abraham so many years ago. No? Then do you think you got into this family by accident? <laughs> do you think you got into this family apart from his notice? Do you disagree with Ephesians 1 when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And you are now a people of the God of Abraham. And this is your story. God's pursuit of worshipers includes God's pursuit of you. So second question. Do you see in this psalm God's rightful authority over you? So do you see in this psalm God's pursuit of you? And do you see in this psalm God's rightful authority over you? If God is the king of the world, then that means he is king over you. If the clapping of hands and the shouts of joy are being directed toward him, that means the clapping of the hands and the shouts of joy are not being directed to you. This is not the way we in our sin prefer things. We like the crown of human praises to be placed upon our heads. We want the ability to declare right from wrong within our own minds. We want the authority to decide what we can and cannot do placed within our hands. But we are not king. We're not king. (laughs) We are a people who are under a king. The Lord, the Most High, the King who is to be feared. So what area of your life has yet to submit to this king? Your home life, your work life, your eyes and where you let them wander, your mind and where you let it drift, your feet and where you let them take you. What area of your life has yet to submit itself to this king? May it be said that we, City's Church, may it be said that we never held anything back from our king. May it be said that we brought all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our deeds. Not only brought them to him, but placed them at his feet and said, thy will be done. May it be said of us. Now as I close here, this psalm, as great as it is, this psalm has a gap, like a major gap. Because what we don't see in this psalm is anything about how this is going to happen. How do we get from Israel in verses three to five to the myriad of the people of God of Abraham in verse nine? Because remember, Israel failed. They did not win the nations to God. Following the penning of this psalm, they would fall over and over and over into idol worship and be exiled into Babylon. 
So how is this psalm going to work? Well, as it is, God's plan did not fail. For God was to call one man, not Abraham, but Jesus, an Israelite. And from this one man, he would make a people who would go out into the world and who would bless the nations and who, by his power and strength, would actually win the nations into the family of God. This is the church. And Jesus would pay for the entrance of each and every one of those members into this church family with his blood. His body would break. His blood would flow so that righteousness through faith could be counted to us. So that the Father could look upon me and you and say, son, daughter. So that's what this table is about here. That's what this meal is about. We celebrate that Jesus is the king over all of this world. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, has paid for and won worshipers for himself from throughout the world. If you are not one right now, if you don't worship this king, if you coming in here this morning perhaps felt startled and and alert and awake, kind of like that group in the beginning of the sermon, I'm asking you right now to turn and worship, to turn from your sin, to turn from the other things in your life that you've been worshiping and to worship this king. Join our family. Join this mighty people, the people of God of Abraham. Join today through faith in him. Would you one day sing with us in eternity with joyful noise, clapping hands, would you sing this song? Worthy are you for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and people and nation. Would you sing that with us in heaven? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are king. We thank you that you pursued us and won us so that we get to enjoy you as king. We get to celebrate you as king. We get to even be a part of your family, the king's family. And pray, Father, that we would submit everything, give everything to you in our life. You would be king over all of us and in all of us. Father, I pray for anyone in here who's not currently a part of this great people. Would you call them through your spirit right now? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we now get to take the Lord's Supper together as the people of the God of Abraham. And so um, I'm going to invite the pastors to come here in a moment, and we'll do the bread uh, together. Um, and it's, uh, let's see, it's gluten-free bread, and we'll pass it around, hold it until the end. Um, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you. <laughs> 